Good to be here this morning. My first sermon ever as a Pastor Stephen. Very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> Praise God. Uh, thanks for everyone that was here last week when I got a chance to be ordained. Um, that was a really um, meaningful experience for, for me and my wife. Uh, so now I'm kind of like assistant pastor here, or if you're an office fan, assistant to the pastor. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I spent about uh, 10 years in campus ministry. I worked for a parachurch organization called The Navigators, uh, primarily at the University of Southern California. I also spent some time at Cal State Fullerton, Cal State Long Beach, other campuses around here. Uh, so that was, that was where I worked. Um, now uh, my wife and I were, were transitioning. We're in the midst of a transition. Uh, I'm in seminary. And over the next couple of years, we're going to be uh, preparing to go uh, plant a church somewhere. Um, and not just plant a church, but actually uh, plant a church in a foreign country to be missionaries. Uh, so that's, that's where we're headed. That's where um, my wife and I are headed. That's what we're preparing for. And we are we're so grateful that uh, as we do that over the next uh, couple of years, that we'll get to call this uh, church home and serve you guys. So thank you for um, letting me be up here this morning and... Um, I, I, I pray and hope that God uses what I say to transform not just you and your hearts, but me as well as I'm speaking. So, um, yeah, let's uh, come together uh, before God's word. Now, we've been going through the book of John. I think we've been in John since January 2018, so it's been a little while. It's been a bit. Uh, and uh, last week, we brought to close uh, the longest single section in the book of John. It was a section that ran from John 13 through John 17. Uh, it's often called the upper room discourse because uh, it's in an upper room and they were discoursing together. Uh, Jesus was uh, speaking to his uh, disciples uh, during the Passover meal. Uh, in most of the gospels, the, the, this account of the Passover meal is like 10 verses long. But in John, it's four chapters long. Uh, so it's been, we, I think we've been there for a couple months now, but it's, it's, it came to a close last week, and now we're moving into a new section of John. It's, uh, this section is often called uh, the Passion of Jesus. It's uh, two chapters long, and it's the events uh, of his life that lead up to his crucifixion. It all takes place uh, over a very uh, short amount of time, uh, and the various events that occur will be we'll be going through um, one by one. Now, the book of John is a history. Uh, more specifically, it's a biography. Uh, and, and as a biography, it, it has some of the features uh, of a biography, uh, you know, of, a, of any sort of biography. First of all, it, it is a true account of the life of Jesus. The events that are described in it are true. They happened. Um, but also, uh, like any biography, it's not just an account of everything that happened in Jesus' life. So when you, when you first think about history, you know, your first ex- my first exposure to history, my, my definition for myself of history was like, it's just like things, an account of what happened. But actually, history is more than that because it, whenever you write a history, it would be impractical, impossible, and in fact, not suitable to just lists everything that happened in the past. You wouldn't be able to make sense of it, uh, and it would be way too long. You can imagine John. I mean, John spent three years with Jesus. If John had just written down every single thing that happened during those three years, 
we would be unable to wade through the mass of material to discover what is important about the life of Jesus. So John, when he's writing his gospel, he's picking events to describe, and he's picking events not to write about. So he's, he's, he's writing, picking things to write about and picking things not to write about in order to create meaning out of the life of Jesus that we can understand. He's basically interpreting the true events of a life in a way that enables us to understand its purpose and meaning for us. Now, there's not just one of these accounts, as you know. There's four. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each one of the writers of these Gospels is doing the same thing. Each one of them are surveying from all the events of Jesus' life and picking some of them. And not picking some of them in order to communicate uh, an interpretation, a true interpretation of his life. <clears throat> you know, it, it, it's possible um, if you uh, read um, a biography of a, of a historical figure, you could read two biographies and come, and come away with two very different interpretations of that person's life. So you can read, like, uh, for example, a, a biography of Winston Churchill and come away with the impression in one, that he was like a a racist apologist for colonialism, and read another and come away with the impression that he was a heroic defender of Western liberty. And the events that are described in each one of those two biographies could all be true. But because of the ones that were chosen, the ones that were not chosen, it's interpreting his life in a different way. And that's that's what's happening in the Gospels. Now, because these are um, ordained by God, because God superintends the writing of them by the power of his Holy Spirit, they don't uh, clash with each other, but they, they uh, weave together to form one coherent narrative about his life, bringing out disparate, different interpretations that are all true. Uh, an analogy to this is I used to be um, a classical percussionist like in another life, like 15 years ago. I, was a, I went to school as a, a, a classical percussionist. And we played this piece once, my, my percussion ensemble, um, by a minimalist composer named Steve Reich. Any big Steve Reich fans out there? No? Okay. Steve Reich, I, I recommend getting him if you haven't. Steve Reich is a, is a brilliant composer. But he wrote this piece, and it's called Drumming. Great name. It's called Drumming. And, and what it is is you get, like, uh, four players and, uh, f- like, four different sets of bongo drums. And the, player, the four players, um, they play a, a, a complicated rhythm on the, on the drums. And they just they play, it just repeats over and over and over again. That's why it's minimalist. Uh, and then two other players will come in, and they'll, they'll pick one aspect of this complicated rhythm, uh, just one piece of it, and then and they'll start to play it, and it'll get louder and louder, and you'll suddenly, out of this complicated rhythm, one part of the rhythm will emerge. And then they'll be quiet. They'll, 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 you know, decrescendo, and it'll go out again. And then they'll pick another part of it and bring that out. And so as it's going, you're hearing, like, different parts of this complicated rhythm. Now, they, they all were there before, but these, these uh, drummers are helping bring out and helping to hear that aspect of it. So that, that is essentially what's happening with our four different Gospels, 
They're all telling the, a true interpretation, a true story about the life of Jesus and its meaning to us. And the, the interpretation of each individual writer is present in the accounts of the other writers. But they're emphasizing and bringing out one aspect of it so that we can see it and we can understand it so that its meaning is communicated to us. All right, that, was a, that was a long introduction. Uh, but I, I wanted to emphasize that because uh, John's gospel is unique. It's different than the others. And the story that we're talking about today, this first event in John's passion, John's account of the passion, is different from how it's presented in the other ones. Okay? The, the story that we read today is uh, Jesus' arrest. Jesus is arrested. Now, the broad, if we were to kind of synthesize all four accounts, the broad view of his arrest is that they, he and his disciples leave the upper room after the Passover dinner. They go out in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in Gethsemane, Judas, the betrayer, arrives with a band of soldiers. Judas comes up to Jesus, kisses him on the cheek. And that's the sign or signal to the, the rest of the band. That's the one. Uh, and then in, in most of the accounts, you know, they, there's a, maybe a few words that are exchanged between Jesus and the people that arrest him. But it's pretty short, and they pretty much arrest him. And they take him to the chief priest. That's the story in, in broad strokes. Now, our account here in, in John has a few differences from the rest. First of all, uh, there's a whole scene that happens in Gethsemane. This whole big event. Jesus spends hours in, in the Garden of Gethsemane praying with his disciples. You, know, you have those dramatic accounts where he's, he's uh, praying and he's sweating drops of blood. Like, John just skips right over all of it. They go out into the, the Garden of Gethsemane, and boom, Judas is there to arrest him. So he didn't even talk about that. The, the kiss doesn't occur. Uh, it, and then there's one difference um, when, when Peter, you know, does his famous chopping off the ear of the guy. John tells us what his name is. Well, none, of the, none of the other accounts tell us what his name is, but John's like, that was Malchus, whose ear they cut off. Now, I, I don't know exactly why John decided to tell us that, uh, but I... It brings like a, a kind of a level of verisimilitude into the story. That uh, this isn't just some like legend like, oh yeah, and I think like Peter, remember he like cut off someone's ear. John's like, no, yeah, he, he did. And that was Malchus. And Malchus is a guy that people know. And you could probably go talk to somebody that knew Malchus. Maybe Malchus is even alive. So th- there's a, 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 a trueness in this narrative that he's bringing out by um, mentioning the, the specific name of the person. Okay, but what is the really unique aspect to this story? Well, let me, let me retell it as John tells it, okay? They leave the upper room. They cross the brook Kidron. They go into the garden. Judas arrives with a band of soldiers armed, sent from the high priests, his guards. And Jesus, it says, knowing what was to come, knowing what was about to happen, Jesus comes out and says, whom do you seek? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I am he. When he says that, the band of soldiers facing an unarmed man and his 11 followers says they drew back and fell to the ground. And he says, I am he. And then Jesus repeats it, says, whom do you seek? 
Presumably, at that point, they get up, and they say, Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, I told you, <laughs> it's me, <laughs> I'm he, uh, and then they arrest him and take him before Caiaphas. That little piece of the narrative is only in John. That little sentence, it's so short, so brief, if you're not reading carefully, you could skip right over it, skip right past it. What is happening in this confrontation? <clears throat> the most particular thing, Jesus stands, says, I am he, and they fall to the ground. Why do they fall to the ground? Why does this happen? Well, I can tell you two reasons why it doesn't happen. There's two reasons that are not why it happens. First of all, there's nothing in his words, nothing in the thing that he says that causes them to draw back and fall down, right? He just says, I am he. He doesn't say like, back away or I'll kill you. You know, he just says, I am he. I don't think in the history of all, all humanity that anyone has ever fallen spontaneously to the ground because someone said, I am he. So it isn't something in his words that causes him that to happen. It also wasn't part of their purpose, right? They didn't come out to find Jesus, you know, bow down before him for a little while and then arrest him. They're coming out to arrest him so that he can be killed. Them uh, falling to the ground before him has nothing to do with the purpose that they're there. Um, in the book of Acts, Acts 10, when Peter goes to, uh, is sent to take the gospel to a Gentile named Cornelius, a centurion. And when uh, Peter arrives at the door, uh, the Cornelius like falls on, on his feet, you know, falls to the ground before him. Now, the reason that he does this is he's like, all right, this guy is being sent to take me to the gospel. I need to show honor to him. So when he comes, I'm going to fall to the ground, right? So it wasn't like Peter showed up and Cornelius spontaneously fell to the ground. He was planning on doing it to honor him. Now, Peter, of course, rebukes him. He says, get up. I'm only a man myself. Do not bow down before me. Get up. Okay, but that process where they're thinking it through and deciding that they're going to fall on the ground when they, when they see him, that's not what's happening here. Now, when else in Scripture uh, do we see someone spontaneously fall to the ground in the same way? In order to understand what's happening here, we should analogize it with other passages in Scripture. Because actually, this process of someone falling to the ground is a theme in Scripture. It happens multiple times. I'll give you just, just a few examples of this. In the book of Ezekiel, in the opening, Ezekiel 2, Ezekiel the prophet is taken up by the Holy Spirit and brought before the throne of God. He sees a vision of the angels that are ministering before the presence of the Lord. He sees the throne room itself. And then he sees one like a son of man, awesome in appearance. And he falls to the ground before him. And then the son of man says, you know, get up. He helps him to his feet. Another example, in Matthew 17, Jesus takes three of his disciples, Peter, John, and James. Takes him with him up on a mountain by themselves. When we get up to the top of the mountain, it says that his appearance is transformed. We call it the transfiguration because his figure is transformed before them. And suddenly he's like shining with this divine glory, this light in their presence. And they, they fall to the ground when that happens. <clears throat> Another example, slightly different, Revelation 19.10 John, the same author of our, our, gospel, our gospel here, 
John is, is, is seeing this vision, and an angel comes to him to take him to see another part of the vision. When the angel comes, uh, the appearance of the angel is so awe-inspiring that uh, John actually falls to the ground in front of this angel. And the angel says, what are you doing? I'm like, yeah, I'm a fellow servant of God with you. Get up. So he, he doesn't let him fall on the ground before him. Yeah, those are three. I could, I could go through many others. It's, it's a theme of the scriptures that when human beings are brought into the presence of something above them, something supernatural, whether angelic, but in particular, when they're brought into the unveiled presence of God, there is a spontaneous response in them. It's very important that we understand that it is a spontaneous response. It's not like these people are brought up into the presence of God and they, they say, oh, I'm in the presence of God now. How should I respond? I bet he would like it if I fell to the, to the ground before him. So I'm going to do that. This is an unplanned response. Unchosen. Immediate. It's like when you go to see the Grand Canyon or some beautiful thing. You're brought into the presence of the Grand Canyon. You don't think to yourself, hmm, this is obviously an impressive and beautiful sight. How should I respond? I should be impressed by it. When you see a sunset. You're not like, this is objectively beautiful, therefore I'm going to choose a response to it. When something is brought before you, that is above you and beyond you, you do not choose what response you have. That response is spontaneously produced in you by the thing that you are seeing. And so it is with men and women that are brought into the presence of God. They do not choose it, but they are filled with awe and wonder. They realize the great gulf that lies between them and the God that they see. Their response is like Isaiah, who says, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. That's Isaiah's response when he's brought before God. He immediately sees the great gulf that lies between him and the divine being, and he is overcome. That is what, for an instance, for an instant, happens here in our text today. And the unmistakable doctrine that we have to take from it is that Jesus Christ is divine. Why do we say that? Why do we take that out of this? Because in that moment, now over the course of Jesus' life, when Jesus was born, he was hailed by the angels but there was nothing in his appearance that marked him out as different from any other human. If you are familiar with the prophecy of Isaiah 53, it says there was nothing in his appearance, speaking of the Messiah, that we should desire him. In appearance, he appeared like an ordinary man. All his life, men interacted with him as an ordinary person. Now, over the course of his ministry, he gave uh, his followers little glimpses. Little moments. So it says in John 2, when the miracle of the water into wine occurs, it says, thus Jesus revealed his glory to his disciples and they put their trust in him. 
in the work of divine power. They saw, not, not directly, but indirectly, something of the glory of God in him. And then here, as, he's about, as, as his passion begins, as he's about to be seized and put under the power and control of sinful men, before that happens, for one instance, his glory is, is revealed like a, like a spark. I am he, he says. And these men, these men who have come, what have they come for? They've come to kill him. They have no choice. This isn't a reasoned decision. They see his glory for an instant, and they are overcome. They fall at their feet before him. In the book of Acts, Acts 14, I think it's Acts 14, pretty sure. Uh, <laughs> Paul and Barnabas are preaching, and um, it, there's a, a little bit of a, like a language difficulty in this area where they're preaching, uh, but basically the people start to say that uh, um, Paul, uh, Bar- Barnabas is Zeus, and Paul is Hermes, these Greek gods. And they go and they, they grab the priest of Zeus, and they tell him, come, let's make sacrifices because Zeus and Hermes are in the city. And it takes a little while. Like Paul and Barnabas don't realize immediately that what, what's happening. But when they figure it out, it says they tear their clothes. And they run out into the crowd, and they say, no, we are men like you. Stop doing this. We are not gods. We are men. But when Jesus, for an instance, is seen as he is, and the men fall at their feet before him, he does not tell them, I'm a man like you. He receives that worship, even though it's unwilling, he receives it from them. Jesus is divine, not only because he causes this reaction, but because he says that this is how men should react in the presence of of God. He receives, he receives their worship. <clears throat> so we have this testimony, testimony of Jesus, as he's about to be put under the control, put under the feet of men who are aiming to kill him. He testifies to them for a second who he is, and they are overcome. Now, there's one conclusion that we can, we can draw from this. This whole thing. In uh, Psalm 2, one of my favorite, um, my favorite psalms. It's one of the most quoted psalms, actually, in the New Testament. Uh, Paul quotes it. The church quotes it in Acts 4. Quote, it's quoted in Hebrews. <clears throat> in this section... I have it up there. It says, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. and The Lord holds them in derision. What's happened in this psalm is that all sources of worldly power All authority that exists, that's been given and delivered unto men on earth. Every bit of their power is gathered together. And they conspire, not only against God, but against the one that God has placed over them, his anointed one. They say, let's oppose him together. Our power together, human power together. 
We can overthrow these bonds. And what is God's reaction? It says the Lord laughs. The Lord laughs. In uh, 2 Kings uh, 19 and 20, when the Assyrian army comes against Hezekiah, puts, places siege around uh, Jerusalem, 185,000 of the best warriors of their day, Assyrian warriors, bottled up all of the Israelites in the city of Jerusalem. And the heralds of the king of the Assyrians come and say, do not listen to your priests and your king because they are deceiving you. They do not know about us, the Assyrians. Every god that we have come against has been overthrown. Did the gods of this people and that people help them against Assyrian power? Do not let your rulers deceive you. Well, that day, Hezekiah prays. The next morning, they wake up, go out into the camps, and 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in an instant have been struck down and are dead. When we think about power and divine power, we're sometimes deceived because we think of it's a human power going up against a very great human power. The kings, maybe we can come up with a good enough plan and even though the power opposing us is greater, maybe we'll still be able to overcome. But this is not human power. This is human power. This is man versus divine power, which infinitely exceeds it. There is no competition. 185,000 soldiers struck down in an instant. And that's only the smallest, most minutest part of the power of the God who created the whole universe. Who sustains it at every moment. Which, when unveiled for just a second, an instant, cast back the men who had come to arrest Jesus. If this is true, then we have to remember, we have to know, that Jesus Christ laid down his life. When they came to arrest him, in an instant, he could overcome them. When they put him on trial, when they slapped him on the face, when they beat him, when they whipped him, when they nailed him to the cross, at every moment that that was happening, existing veiled in God was a divine power that could have overcome every human power. And this divine power, this divine authority that was inherent in the Son of God was placed at the disposal of divine love. His authority was worked out, not so that Jesus Christ could be free of the cross, but so that the events of his life would lead him inexorably to the cross. This was the workings of divine authority in his life and ministry. It was leading him to die. Divine authority placed at the feet of divine love. Jesus Christ laid down his life for his church. There is no other conclusion that we can come to. How great is the love of God? How great is the love of the one who took this up voluntarily, knowing every step of the way that it was coming? This divine authority uh, 
superintending his life and leading him to that place is the same authority that goes out with the gospel message now. It's the same authority that proclaims the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to us. It's the same authority that says, the Son of Man has died for the sins of the world. Repent and obey. Come to Jesus. That invitation, lying behind it, is the authority that casts down in a second all worldly opposition. Because you see, there is coming. There will certainly come a day When this man, veiled in human flesh as he was, will return unveiled. When the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, will come on the clouds of glory. And the scriptures tells us in Isaiah, repeated in the New Testament, that on that day, every knee will bow before Jesus Christ. It won't be a chosen reaction. Because he comes, because he is there, because divine glory shines out through him and we see it, our knees will bow. Some of us in love, in worship, in adoration. Others overcome by despair and terror. But that authority, the authority that submitted him to the cross, will one day submit the whole earth at his feet. This is the gospel message. In the death and resurrection, there is the forgiveness that will bring you joyfully before him. 